1: a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter.
2: I think you could essentially call Christy
1: Plott the queen of alligators. alligators you're thinking to yourself, this is a hunting podcast, why is she? Why is Robbie talking to someone who deals in alligators? Well, the sustainable use of alligators is inherently tied in with the sustainable use model of hunting. And that industry has shown the benefits of what hunting ranching has done on that population. I think you'll find this conversation extremely fascinating. And you're going to take away seeds that will then be planted in your brain to when you discuss hunting and sustainable use model to how it pertains to alligators and other wildlife around the world. Well, as I just said, congratulations.
3: (laughs) Well, thank you. Uh,
1: Well done. So what what does the app do? People can buy skins on the app?
3: They can buy skins. They can learn about conservation. They can read, oh gosh, um, articles on leather goods making. Um, you know, they can listen to podcasts, which we'll put this on there. Amazing. Um, so it's pretty interactive. It's got a read. Um, let's see. It's a shop, read, watch, learn. Those are the four main uh, main tabs and believe it or not i was actually the app that i saw that i really really loved was a hunting company app um which one it's called stone glacier and they um they sell hunting gear they sell really um jazzy backpacks and things to load your you know your gear in I, your love gear. You're,
2: I
1: love that you're just like i you know they're just like this People can immediately tell that you are not in the hunting community, Christy, based on the fact that you just mentioned who Stone Glacier was, and um, I love it.
3: Yeah, well, you know what? I come from a long line of people in my family that hunt, um, but we're all fat and lazy, so no one's going to hike out and put a deer in a backpack. We have four-wheelers for that. We're grownups.
1: Well, Stone Glacier (laughs) is certainly a good company, and I'll tell you how good a company they are. We just finished a project called Hunters for the Hungry, in which we funded the hunters uh, providing meat to underprivileged people and less fortunate people in the state of Wyoming. We raised twenty three thousand six hundred dollars, and ten thousand dollars of that was matched by Stone Glacier.
3: very cool. well, they um they they have a beautiful app, um, which I loved very much. And um I took some. Homage from their app to translate it into our app. Uh you could say that I, I liked it so much that um, you know, really, I mean, I I dissected it and they just have some great things about it. So some of our design aspects are similar to theirs, which tied into also to our, what our website looks like, but they they did a really beautiful job on their app. And um so anyways.
1: What's the app what's the app's name?
3: Amtan. Am-tan. What else?
1: Tan, exactly. yeah. So, Amtan.
3: Mm-hmm. Amtan.
1: So, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, since we've gone and chitty-chattied about your Amtan app.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, so, hi, everybody. Thank you so much for joining. I am Christy Plot. I'm one of the owners of American Tanning and Leather. My family is, um, you know, a fifth-generation leather and fur and hide and skin company. Um, started in 1923 by my great grandfather great yeah my great grandfather Um, my nephew is now the fifth generation and we are the oldest and largest exotic leather tannery in the country and we specialize in tanning american alligator leather
1: so why would i have someone who is in the leather business on a hunting podcast
3: um i don't know i thought maybe it was just because you thought i was cool and maybe like no, because <laughs> I'm not. I'm, uh...
2: I'm going
1: to use. I am going to use the artwork that is you in a a blue ball gown dress, holding a leash that is has the <laughs> collar around an alligator.
2: <laughs> oh goodness!
3: So, um, you know what a lot of people don't know is that um, the alligator industry has sort of been through all the phases of the challenges that the hunting community is is seeing um you know the alligator was declared endangered in 1967 by the federal government uh and has recovered completely from endangered species status and um the the crux the backbone of the alligator leather industry is alligator hunting because um, before there was alligator farming or it's technically called ranching, if you, if you, if there's anybody out there who's nerdy enough like me and, um, who geeks out on these kinds of sighties type terms. But, um, before there was any such thing as alligator ranching, all of the leather that it was produced worldwide of alligator and crocodile skins all came from wild populations. Um... And the way we got into it as a family is because my grandfather, my great grandfather, my father, they were primarily buying fur skins all around the northeastern mm-hmm. uh, part of Georgia, this, you know, and the, and the southeastern United States in general. Yep. And they were wild trapped furs. And so it was very simple for them to begin uh, to get into just sort of a side business, which was wild caught alligator skins. And we were raw skin dealers at the time, and it just sort of manifested itself into now we have a tannery. But um, that's sort of the backbone of this business is the hunting and the programs that have been put in place for the American alligator. And I just think it's something that people, that hunters will find very interesting because we have been through, I mean, truly everything. I mean, you know, when you want to talk about um, looking at conservation of wildlife And you want to talk about an animal that's up to the brink of extinction, or so they say, or they were on the endangered species list. I don't know that I would say that they were ever at the brink of extinction. Um, To how they've recovered today. It's something that's pretty astounding. And there's some data that's there um, and some research that's been done that I think that hunters will find very interesting because it's things that people who spend a lot of time outdoors they find quite intuitive but yet it's unless someone puts it in a peer reviewed scientific journal it often doesn't get the attention that it deserves
2: right
1: so how can you be so certain christy that the close to extinct population of alligators in the wild today has rebounded to levels greater than it's ever seen before how do you know it's due to you? How do you know it's due to alligator hunting and not due to animal rights groups that have decided to get behind the, the wild alligator?
3: Because we harvest more alligators than ever now. So there's more alligators harvested and the population numbers are higher than they've ever been. I don't know that we could say they're more than there ever has been because you know there was a time in the 60s where the, the hunting was really unregulated. But today, on average, um there are more than 550 probably 600,000 American alligators every year that are harvested and put into trade so 600,000 okay. and that is a combination of both farm raised alligators or ranched alligators where the eggs come from the wild and wild harvested alligators um but it is so tightly regulated um you know, hunters, they typically think, unless they're a big game hunter, um, who are, you know, taking CITES listed species. Um, but probably many of your listeners are just guys who just live out in the country and they know what a duck, they know what a duck stamp is. But when you want to talk about the level of regulation that we have, take it farther than a duck stamp, take it farther than a CITES permit, every alligator or crocodile in the world that is harvested is mandated to have a a serialized tag number on it. And we are the only species in CITES that has that type of requirement. So we have the highest regulation in the entire world. And yet we also have one of the highest levels of compliance. And we have cooperation between government, science, and industry. And I think that that's where we really have hit a home run and why our program works so well and i'm not saying it would work for every species because it's definitely not a one size fits all but what what has um what we've done has worked
1: wasn't there a program in louisiana in which helped the wild population the 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 alligator ranches had to put back a certain amount of alligators
3: yes so the way um and there's you know there's harvests of alligators in the United States and there are harvests of crocodiles in other parts of the world. But I really think that, um, the state of Louisiana has done it, um, head and shoulders above everyone else. I mean, honestly, they have really set the bar very high and everyone in the world has tried to somewhat model their program around what Louisiana has done. So, um, the way the program came about in the state of Louisiana is they, started f- trying to figure out how they could incentivize um, landowners to look after American alligators as a natural resource. Number one, because Louisiana is a state that is, um, you know, it's not easy to police the wetlands, okay? So if you're having law enforcement out there to try to look, you know, you can't have a law enforcement guy everywhere. Yep. So who better to look after alligators than the landowners where the animal is living. And if that animal is worth something to him, well, you can be assured that he's going to look after his natural resources like he would look after money in his wallet or money in his bank account. Yep. And so what the state decided to do is they figured out a system where they would engage alligator hunters who maybe had an interest in pioneering this alligator ranching or farming program and the state started conducting um aerial flyovers of wetlands habitats and they were marking the number of nests that they would see in a certain area so you know alligators are quite um you know a, a an animal that is not easy to see in the wild if particularly if there's a lot of hunting pressure on them and so they were able to determine populations by nest counts. So they would fly over in helicopters, count nests. Now, a long time ago, they would mark those nests with, um, you know, on a map. But now they, of course, do it with GPS, so it's um, much more technologically advanced. But um, the state wildlife agents would then determine what they thought the population of alligators were in certain areas. And according to that, they would set limits as to how many egg permits could be drawn upon a certain landowner's piece of land. Mm -hmm. And the state, the landowner, and the alligator farmer would then enter into a three-way contract. The farmer was allowed to go onto the landowner's property and purchase 100% of the alligator eggs that he could then find. And the state was strictly overseeing that. And we're talking um, everything from all of the permit applications, the fact that the farm has to be able to prove that he has the capability to pick up the eggs, to transport them, to incubate them and to hatch them. So the farm goes onto the land the farmer goes onto the landowner's property, he takes the eggs, he takes them back to his farm, he incubates the eggs, he hatches them. Now, um the farmer is now required by law to release 10% of what hatches back onto that landowner's original parcel of land. Yep. So, you know, you're you're doing two things. Number one, the landowner is getting paid for a natural resource for the egg Number two, he's replenishing his stock of eggs every year by, by letting that animal become three or four feet in length. That's the length that the biologists have deemed where the animal has the best chance of survival in the wild on its own. Um, and then you've taken a resource that would have quite honestly been lost because 95% of eggs, if left undisturbed in a nest, would just either drown, they would, be, um, they would fall um they would be susceptible to predation by ants or raccoons or other animals in the wild and so they're taking a resource that would have been a wasted resource and you're not only providing income to the landowner who owns the habitat so he's looking after the habitat yep but you're also providing jobs to people on farms and you're you know they say that it's um the preliminary the preliminary numbers from Louisiana State University this year and an economic impact study that was done on the alligator industry. Um, But the preliminary numbers that came back from Louisiana State University is that the alligator industry has an economic impact of $250 million a year annually in the state of Louisiana. Now that might not seem like a lot of money to people, but when you consider the fact that these are dollars that are going into rural communities, um, and places where there aren't a lot of livelihood options. You know, Google is not going to go uh, down to Chalk Bay, Louisiana, and set up an office and start training and hiring people to be data programmers. It's not going to happen. So, you know, the people there, they live in somewhat, um, you know, remote, small communities, and they need options for ways that they can earn money and do it sustainably off the land. So alligator farming has been a wonderful resource for that. and it has. That has really helped to um, to to bring the population numbers up.
1: It's funny the whole sustainable use argument around hunting. It's in our backyard. It's in <laughs> actually. It's in the highest of highest fashion industries that this world has to offer.
3: Yeah. So you know the whole program of all all use of exotic leather it all hinges on sustainable use um, because reptiles need original habitats to survive. You know, you're not going to take an alligator obviously out of the wetlands of Louisiana or the marshes of Florida, and you're not going to relocate them to Pennsylvania and expect them to survive in the wild. Right. They need original habitats. The other thing that's interesting to note is that the wetlands are disappearing faster than any ecosystem on the planet at a rate of, this is according to the U.S. Geological Survey, at a rate of one football field every hour in the state of Louisiana. Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest incentives to keep wetlands intact in the state of Louisiana is the fact that most of those lands, 80, 80% of the coastal wetlands in Louisiana are privately owned. So those disappearing ecosystems that are so important um, for you know seven or 8,000 species of plants and animals, they're owned by private people. So land, just like anything else, costs money to upkeep. So where do those people get their money? From the sale of alligator eggs. So it's a very powerful, a really tangible incentive for that landowner to keep his land intact.
1: That sustainable use model, though, is not just limited to alligators, right?
3: No, of course. Of You've course got it...
1: examples everywhere around the world, specifically sure. tied to reptile, reptiles, right?
3: Sure. Snakes and lizards, it's the same thing. It's, it's basically, if you really want to break it down, it's paying people to tolerate living near animals that will kill you. <laughs> That's it. That's what it is.
1: Sounds like elephants and lions and... it's
3: it's very similar, you know and i um it's one of the one of the interesting things that I hear and um I'm fortunate enough to work for the Louisiana Department of Wildlife and I work for a a, a, a something that falls under the umbrella of the Louisiana Department of Wildlife called the Louisiana alligator Advisory Council and I am fortunate enough to be able to work for the fine folks on the council and in the state, and I attend the CITES meetings on their behalf, and I represent um, the Louisiana alligator industry there. And it is my job to be involved in um, listening about policy, learning about policy, making sure that um, if there are any points where policy could be Detrimental to the sustainable use program in the state of Louisiana, that I'm involved in that. And one of the things that I continuously hear over and over again in CITES, and it, um, you know, while I don't have experience in elephants, is that I hear that trade in legal ivory is going to ignite illegal trade in ivory. And we found that in the alligator and crocodile industry, it's exactly the opposite. Legal trade in American alligators is what has made there to be no demand for illegal animals.
1: None. Old school mentality, right? Old school 1960s, 1970s mentality that if we allow the trade of elephant ivory, then there's going to be increased poaching and today the, the regulations are so much stricter, the technology is so much better. As you said, you've got a, a an alligator industry that is so is, is so everything is serialized. It could be the same thing as in elephants and
3: rhinos. It's also the fact that when you start getting credible, legitimate businesses involved, um, in, in an industry, and again, you, they're so highly regulated, and, and you've also got science involved, you've got government involved, you know, people that are business people are not interested in selling piece one of something, you know, I, I tell people this all the time, you know, I'm not Cruella de Vil, I'm not trying to make one coat made of 101 Dalmatians, you know, I want a regular supply chain of products that are legal traceable verifiable and sustainable and if i don't have that then in today in today's market you just don't have customers for those things so when you why do
1: you want it sustainable
3: why do i want it sustainable yeah because we're five generations in this business why wouldn't i want it sustainable if it wasn't sustainable i'd be out of a job believe me the plot family doesn't know how to do anything else we're too stupid
1: Well, that's the key thing, though, is it's people on the other side of the coin, the anti-use people, I guess, have this perception that if you don't use it, it's going to flourish.
3: I mean, listen, I I can't think of anything, um, you know, I think I told you my dad hunts. All the, my my dad works. We we have an alligator tannery, so that my dad can hunt and fish. That that's just the bottom line. That's why he works. And I know that my father spends a great deal of time, energy, and effort to plant food for his deer. That's why he plants food for his deer.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And if he doesn't plant food for his deer and he doesn't he doesn't do all of the things that go along with it because it's not necessarily about the use of the animal or the killing of the animal it's not the hunting of the deer that makes more deer come it's all of the things that you do that go along with hunting is that is what increases your population of wildlife
2: mm-hmm
3: there's, there is, um, you know, whether it be, for example, making sure that your animals have a good source for food and water, it's, it's really at the core of it about the habitat. That's it. And I think a lot of people just seem to not get that. And what I get frustrated with, particularly in the conservation community of intellectuals is that I find that they are widely urbanites who would be afraid of their shadow at three o'clock at night in the middle of the woods. Right. Yet they think they know more than the people who actually live amongst wildlife every day and deal with it. You know, it would be like, I mean, listen, it would be like taking someone out of Papua New Guinea who lives out in the bush and for them to say that they know better about policy for I don't know, urban planning in New York City.
2: Sure, That's,
3: that's how foreign it is to me that, that there's all of these people who truly are so out of touch with nature and the way nature actually works and they're making all of these policies. So,
1: so why then, I guess it's a, it's, a, it's a question you and I wrestle with all the time and we talk about it all the time. Why then, how do they not know How do they not know that because of sustainable use, you have more wildlife? Because of sustainable use, you have a burgeoning alligator population in Louisiana. Because of sustainable use, you have a Kenyan village now that can...
3: I love this story, yeah. ...get
1: electricity and water. And, you know, as you said, they are willing to live with that animal now that every so often decides to take a villager.
3: You know, I don't know. I don't know if it's... Arrogance or that it's superiority, I guess, what I guess those would be the same thing. I don't.
1: Is the blame on us? Have we forgotten to tell them the way that they need to be told?
3: You know, I think that today we live in such a, we live in this world that is this fake inclusive world. I I believe that. You know, I, I saw something on social media this week and it was like, no Asian hate, no, you know, like Black Lives Matter, like all of this list of people. Yet I didn't see anything about indigenous people there. I didn't see anything about poor people. I didn't see anything about people who live in rural communities. And I think that there's this mentality that because people who typically live with and around wildlife, that they are somehow less educated, not as intelligent, that they don't have the same, um, you know, you know, it's it's this mentality that I've seen is that I know better than you what to do with your wildlife, and that's what I see over and over again. You know, I saw it with the state of California. I saw a guy who um, sat in a Senate natural resources committee who grew up his whole life in Southern California. I mean, I, I, I that's what he, that's what he knows. And, you know, he's a Harvard educated attorney. I'm sure he's a brilliant, you know, academic mind, but he didn't know anything about what it's like to live in a place like cut off Louisiana right. and the opportunities that are there for people and that are not there for people. And he doesn't know anything about the way incentivizing people to live next to animals that will kill you works, Mm
2: -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm.
3: they don't have animals that will kill you in Malibu.
2: Sure.
3: You know, they have, they have fires, they have, uh, you know, that might be their, their biggest threat with a natural resource. But, you know, that would be like me trying to enact policy again on wildfires that happen in California. That's not what I know about. So. I just find that it's such a I, it's such an attitude of policymakers that they they think they're doing the right thing, but it's like going into a dental convention and asking them, saying, Hey guys, we're now going to start building skyscrapers and we need to know what gauge of steel that we need to use in building this. You right. know, I'm not I'm not saying that policymakers aren't intelligent people, but you know, they get in these echo chambers and just yesing each other to death, and they start to believe that they know what to do because they read run report by Defenders of Wildlife or the Born Free Foundation, which is um, which is not a scientific group of people. It's a it's an interest group. So there you have it. That's- but as you
1: said, you know, there is there is the need for peer reviewed science, absolutely. But there's also the need for common sense, and almost on the ground, um, real world experience.
3: For sure. And, you know, one of the things that I know about the scientific community that I work with for conservation of crocs and alligators is that because industry is currently doing the right thing, and I'm not saying that we've always, as industry, been squeaky clean. I'm not saying that. Um, because certainly we, our group was the one who, you know, many, many years ago hunted them without any type of regulation. And, and it, it, you know, we weren't looking after things, but we didn't know, or maybe they did know. I don't know. I wasn't born yet. So, (laughs) but I do know this, I'm fully aware that the scientists that I work with today, if what our industry was doing certainly, suddenly became unsustainable if it, certain, if it suddenly became a threat to conservation or a threat to species, and I don't care what it is that we do, we would suddenly be in, um, not in the, in the good graces of the scientific community. So it is, um, you know, and, and there's been all of these accusations, which this is preposterous, that some of these scientists are in the pocket of industry. That's not true at all. You know, whenever uh, industry tried to come about and say that they wanted to come up with some type of, oh gosh, like um, all of these blockchain traceability systems and mm-hmm. some of these things, you better believe that there's a lot of scientists who don't, who are not okay with that because there's people in very remote parts of the world that can't keep up with technological advances that some of the bigger brands might want to implement. And in order for things to be truly equitable, and truly sustainable the little guy has to be able to have the opportunity to conserve his wildlife and it can't just be people who own big tracts of land but people in very remote places in the world have to have the opportunity to uh, have to have the opportunity for their wildlife to be valued Mm -hmm. too
1: yeah but it's also tied to you right you said it yourself There's a reason why you are still in business five generations later.
2: Yeah, sure.
1: Because of the sustainability of the resource. If the resource started going downhill, just like it would in a hunting scenario that your impala population is slowly dropping, 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 that's an economic asset to you that that you would want to see returned.
3: Well, there are only a certain number of American alligators that can be harvested each year. And that means that there's only a limited number of supply for our company each year. So, you know, if all of a sudden those numbers have to tick down, then that means um, it's less opportunity for us.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Well, that's just, that's just the model, right? That's the model of sustainable use. It's the model of hunting around the world that, you know, you want you, you, you know, in the Southeast, you protect your habitat, uh, in terms of predator control, because you love to turkey hunt, and you make sure that you control your nest predators, so that you have turkeys on your property, and you look after them, and you plant food for them, and you do all sorts of things. You burn, and you do all those things.
3: Sure, and the and they're doing all of these things in the wetlands as well. They're do undertaking, you know, landowners undertake restoration projects, um, whether it be building terraces out into the marsh, um, restoring tidal flow, or um, redirecting when um, currents go up. They do things like keeping boats out, you know, because one of the worst things for the marsh is a lot of the the, the green stuff. I don't know what you would want to call it. There's a name <laughs> for it. The stuff that floats.
1: Yeah, the duckweed.
3: That stuff, the green stuff. And, you know, the, if you run boat motors through it and you've got a bunch of people just running through their fishing. And, and again, you know, this is one of those really, um, Tricky situations because water is technically not the landowner's um, right. property. It's the land. So, you know, when you start talking about wetlands, landowners in the wetlands want to do everything they can to hold on to every little inch of land that they have. Because if it starts to break up or if their land floats away and floats onto someone else's property, well, then it's not their land anymore.
2: hmm
3: well, the interesting thing and how that ties in is that alligators are not fish. They nest on land. So if they don't have land and their land begins to wash away, i.e. the habitat washes away, well, that's less money for them. So it's a really um, pretty brilliant way that the state of Louisiana put it together. One of the, one of the other cool things that the state did is that they have kept and i told you about the aerial surveys yep but for the past 30 years or so when they when they reopened the alligator hunting season in the late i think 1970s they started keeping records of length of all of the alligators that were harvested um and these are meticulous records now If you want to know how they were able to keep such meticulous records, it's very interesting. Louisiana has a commercial harvest of wild alligators. It's not a recreational harvest. It's not, you can't just go and get a hunting license and just go hunt alligators in Louisiana. You have to be a landowner. And there are only a handful of dealers of people who can buy wild alligators from the landowner. So after you know uh, the landowner is issued a certain number of tags according to what the state thinks that he is able to cull off of that piece of property per year. Okay. So he's issued these plastic serialized tags. Okay. Um, and some of your listeners may have seen Swamp People. If they haven't, yep, I highly yep. recommend them to watch it because they'll get a little understanding of this. But Louisiana Department of Wildlife issues these tags to landowners and says, you can harvest this many alligators. Now, If that landowner loses those tags, misplaces those tags, they fly off of his boat, well, he's out of business. Like, that's it. He doesn't, he then can't hunt those alligators. So they don't get replaced. So those those alligator tags are very valuable. And the alligator, um, the landowner then can go hunt those alligators and can sell the whole carcass alligator to dealers of alligator in the state. There's not very many of them. There's just a handful. And. Then every part of that animal is utilized. The meat is sold, the heads are sold, of course, the skin is sold. Um, and my family goes to Louisiana and we buy alligators every year. My dad, my brothers, they go for about six weeks. And you can better believe that if my father could clip the toenails on those animals and make that into some type of elixir and sell it, he would do it. Every, <laughs> I mean, it, people are there to, to earn money. Um, sure. Because spending six weeks in South Louisiana in the heat, um in a place where they're skinning alligators uh, seven days a week
2: super pleasant ten a- environment
3: it's really really lovely <laughs> um, so yeah so he's there to make money and um so as i was well, that's saying
1: why we have alligators <laughs> exactly yes, we have alligators because they have a value
3: well yes and but the state at our place where we buy alligators the state has an has a biologist there the whole time, pretty much. And the biologists are there taking tissue samples, and they're taking measurements. They're uh, collecting data on the sex of the animal, on the, the all of this type of, you know, biology-type data that they're collecting. At the end of the season, when we take the alligators out of the state, when any alligator leaves the state, we pay a $4.25 severance tax to the state of Louisiana on every single alligator that leaves the state. Now, one of the cool things about that means that the state of Louisiana, they definitely want to get their $4.25 on every animal. Mm-hmm. Now, they know who buys what tags. The, hunt, the landowners report where their animals were sold, so the state has that information, so they know who has them. And the state then goes after that person to say, hey, before you leave the state, be sure to pay us. Yep. And they're gonna check everything. So when they do that, you have to submit to the state all of the lengths of the animals that you're buying. And that that $4.25 that the state that the state collects actually funds the entire wildlife management program for the alligator program. Funds all of the biologists, their salaries, the fees to fly the helicopters over to do aerial nest counts, everything that they're doing, it funds all of that. And so if the industry was not a part of this, there would be no tag fees paid. And if that didn't happen, then those, that, the alligator is going to get managed in the state regardless. So that money would have to come from other state funds. So it is um, completely the, the wildlife division of alligators for Louisiana is completely funded by the industry. And they collect all of this data. And um, it is. You know, one of the things that was written recently, and I sent you a copy of this, is a a peer-reviewed article that was published in the Journal of Wildlife Management. And um, it was written by the Alligator Program Manager for the state, um, Jeb Linscombe. It was written by another guy who's a retired wildlife biologist and and program manager for the state, Ted Joannan, who sort of architected the whole um, sustainable use program there. And then it was written by um, Dr. Mark Merchant at McNeese State University, uh, and then a few other people that have worked in other areas in the management of the species. And what their paper basically said is they analyzed this data over 31 years of alligator harvest. And according to an animal rights group, you would think that if you are killing alligators for 31 years, that your populations are going to go down. That's not what that's not what it shows at all. It actually shows that as they have killed more alligators, populations have gone up. They've also shown that as they have killed more alligators, the average size...
1: Has gone down.
3: At, uh, no, of the big alligators, that's not what it shows. It shows that the average size of the big alligators killed has remained constant. So that's very interesting because... You know, you would think that you know that because because of where the way Louisiana structures their hunting program, which is after the the eggs have been laid, so it's after the nesting season. and most people that are that are hunting alligators, and in Louisiana, it's really fishing. it's a hook it's a it's a line fishing system, yeah, they're hunting in areas where they're really going to avoid large female alligators typically and and because it's a hook and line method, it's um you know they don't they're not going after just big animals. So it's not like other types of game hunting where, you know, hunters, deer hunters, for example, like I don't know anyone who goes out into a deer stand and says, "I'm going to shoot that little spike." That's not what people do. they're They're going after big animals. Right. the al- the alligator, the commercial harvest of alligators is sort of if you hang that hook, it's whatever you get on the hook, and that's what you take. That's the way it goes. And um, You know, it's, it's the first time that anybody's ever done a scientific analysis of this type of data. And of course, I read it, and it's got all of these graphs and statistical analysis in it. But it's so funny that one of the guys who actually wrote the paper, I said, you know, I'm not a scientist, and I'm definitely not a math whiz, okay? But I've been working in my family business for the past 20 years and i we buy consistently anywhere between 3 and 12,000 alligators a year wild alligators and so a typical wild harvest for us is always the same so if it's 3,000 animals or 6,000 animals or 10,000 animals skins the sizes are consistent mm-hmm. it's this many percent in this size and it's always been that way you know since i've been working there so what that says is that something's constant. And when something's constant, that means it's sustainable. It means that, you know, your populations are staying the same, even if the numbers of harvests are going up. So if you were to have big dips in, for example, you know, the harvest sizes of animals or if they were changing, that would tell you that maybe something's not, they need to take a look at this. Yeah, for sure. So, um so I find that that's really interesting, and it's roughly only about three percent of the wild alligators in the state of Louisiana that are harvested. So it's a tiny, tiny number.
1: And the population is going up. The alligator population is for going sure. Up.
3: That, that's that's one hundred percent sure. The population is going up. The average harvested size is on big animals is staying constant. So it means that we're not taking out um, the the biggest animals. It's it's a very very small percentage of really big alligators that get harvested every year. The average size of an alligator that gets harvested in the state of Louisiana, um, from my data, is is we go by centimeters for the width because I work in the leather industry. But for everybody else, it's about a seven and a half foot alligator. That's the average size. It's not anything bigger than that. So it's um, that's that's, and it's always been that way, which is crazy.
1: No, it's amazing. It's amazing how your industry, your livelihood, is so analogous to hunting and the sustainable use of the animal, the, the desire to have more wildlife on the landscape and the metrics that show that your wildlife populations are increasing, or even your trophy quality is increasing because of the fact that you're able to do it, you're able to use it, you're able to value it. And, um, yeah, I love it. That's why, you know, I think we connected so well in the beginning is that I just could see exactly what you're doing fits with our model. We're a sustainable use model and there's great sustainable use examples all over the world and and you and And your time with the alligator industry is one of them. So thank you.
3: Yeah, that listen, it's a I I love doing it I think that it's um It's it's something that I'm really passionate about and quite honestly I wish I knew more about some of the sustainable use of other species. I mean my my only really experience with it is with alligators and crocodiles and reptiles. Um, and then of course with, you know, the hunting that my, that my family does, but you know, I see that just from a, being a simple country girl from Griffin, Georgia, the people that I know that have more wildlife are the people that, that are the people that hunt. Those are the people that care about it. Um, so they, and I see that they do more for it. And I see that, you know, it's really sad to me that hunters get such a bad rap when, I know that someone who is really and truly a, a hunter, that they're someone who it, they love wildlife. You know, they would, they would, they would rather, they would rather not live in this world without wildlife. I mean, it's so important. That's, that's everyone that I know that that's a hunter. They're real happy places in the woods. It's, it's not in, it's not in the urban areas for sure.
1: well said. And I think that's a great ending point.
3: Okay.
1: Piece of wisdom out of Griffin, Georgia.
3: You're welcome. (laughs) You're welcome, world.
1: Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.